You know, we're, we're excited because we're going to probably do another baptism in September because we're, we're just praying into this summer, you know, the, the summer series that starts after Father's Day weekend next weekend. Uh, the, the series is called Rescued, and every week we're going to dig into a story in the Bible where somebody makes a decision uh, to become a Christ follower, maybe some people from the Old Testament who choose to live their life for God. And, and so every week there's going to be a, a, a poignant place in the service that we bring to you for people to make a decision to make a vow of devotion to Christ. So we're believing there's going to be a whole line of people by the time we get to Dece- September. Are you with me? That we're going to have to do another baptism. And I, that moment where Jenna had the microphone and, and, and she just said, hey, is there anybody else here? You just love the spontaneity of that moment. And, uh, and, and then that lady just popped right up out of those stands, taking off her jewelry, her watch, dumping her phone into the person's lap next to her. I don't even think she knew them, right? Just please don't take my stuff, right? I'm going to get water baptized. And so she said, can you imagine? Just driving home, soaking, sopping wet, right? She might have had some errands to run. Where, where have you been? I've been at church today. Where have you been, right? That must have been a great church service. So if you are here and you have never made a vow of devotion to Christ, we would love to talk to you about what that is, and we'd love to get in that water with you in September. So let's just, let's just pray into that before we get into tonight's message. Father, we, we know that we think about the 160 people that were making some noise in that pool at the YMCA, but that's nothing compared to the noise that was happening in heaven. Every time those people walked into that water, young and old, and went in and came up new, that all of heaven was celebrating. And then we think, Father, that it wasn't just here. It was church services all around the world as the globe was turning and the sun was rising and baptism services were happening from sunup until sundown that scores of people breathed life anew. May it be, God, that we're going to step right back into that moment in September that all of us, that you would put someone on our heart, even now, God, as we pray, that we're supposed to run after, that we're supposed to reach for, that we're supposed to invite, to come to a service this summer, God, that they themselves need to be rescued. In Christ's name. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. We could just keep praying into that, could we not, for the next 45 minutes. Let's, whoo, come on excited. All right, so let me give you a little, little faith promise update. You know, you, if you were here, you know, our theme for the year is come up. Whatever that means for you, take your next step. Whatever, whatever it means for you to go deeper in your devotion to Christ, to go farther in what it means to live for Jesus. And one of them oftentimes is generosity. We're going to be talking about that a little bit tonight. So we just wanted to give you an update that there's been a total of 32 faith promises given. Faith promise means that you pray, God gives you a number, you believe by faith that he's going to provide it, and you make a promise that when he does, you give it. You don't put your name on the card, it's not a pledge, we don't follow up with you, it's just between you and God. We've had 32 cards turned in so far this year, totaling $39,867.62. Come on, that's huge, you should be clapping for that. So, but let me, what's come in already, already this year, $16,860 has already come in, money turned in. I know, come on. It's big. It's good. That money goes to support our work in missions here and around the world, and then also to have funds just as, as opportunities come to launch new ministries, just advance the vision of the church, that there's just going to be resources that we want to be able to hold in reserve to be able to do the things that God is calling us to do. So, all right, so we're trying something new tonight. You ready to try something? We like to do new things. We like to experiment here at the City Life Church. It's a culture of experimentation. And uh, so, we, you know, we, we, we had some uh, some 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 intervention of God throughout our services in this series that got us off schedule, and we like that. 
So we came prepared to do one thing, and we ended up doing something else. And the dilemma that created for me is that I came down to one last week in our series, and I have three sermons to preach. And so I know that you didn't want to be here until 11. I would like to do that, and me and probably one other person would enjoy that experience. And so I thought, you know, how am I going to get all three of these sermons? I was praying this week, and I just really felt like God said, hey, come on, we're going to figure this thing out. And I kept praying and listening. And, and, uh, and so I really felt like God gave, me some, God gave me some direction to distill those three messages down to one and, uh, and to help us stay on track and to get through. We're doing our first teaching through a handout tonight. And so if you don't have a handout, raise your hand. The ushers need to get you one of these. There's going to be fill in the blanks. Come on. I promise all the type A personalities, don't get nervous. We're going to make sure that you get every fill in the blank. Just keep your hand up until the ushers get to you. All right? Keep your hand up until the ushers get to you. They've got one for you. And uh, so if you don't have a pen, just reach in the pocketbook next to you and just dig around in there. She's, there's whoever that lady is. She's got about 14 pens down there in the bottom of that pocketbook. So. All right, so we're going to work through this uh, t- together tonight, and then as we get on, the, the, the answer is going to pop up onto the screen, and then you can put them, put them in, your, uh, uh, in your handout. And then we just want some feedback, whether you like this, info at the City Life Church, whether or not, you know, if you, I hope we do this every week, or I, I might forsake my faith in Christ because there was a handout, you know? Just let us know whether or not you, uh... all right. Hey, can I just say one more thing, too? I love this front row. Can I just say that? Come on, when, 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 when church gets started, there's about, you know, there's usually about 200 people in here, and so when church gets started, there's about eight, right? And I love the fact they were all right here on the front row. In fact, I was watching Andrew, he was getting a little nervous because he thought he was going to lose his seat because people kept coming in, and they kept scooching out, right? And he's thinking to himself, I'm going to have to sit on the floor when Pastor Fred's preaching, but you know what? He said, I'm staying in, my, I'm staying in the front row. I am not losing my seat. And so we love the front row, come on, of the City Life Church. This is the first row to, to fill up here, not the one in the back. And we like that. Love your passion. Love your passion. They're in the spit zone. That's what we call it. They're in the spit zone. So Matthew 13, 52 says, And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. And we build off of this verse oftentimes as a church, especially when we're talking about things that matter to us as a church, cultural distinctives, things, that, doctrines that are important to us, because one of the things that we understand Jesus to mean here is that in your storehouse, as a church, in your storehouse, you've got new treasures and old treasures. New treasures are things that have a season. New treasures are things that are for a moment, and they come and go. Like the, 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 an old treasure for us is Davidic psalmic worship, which we're going to talk about tonight. The new treasure for us is the kind of songs that we actually do, because they're going to change from generation to generation. So as a church, it's important to understand the difference between new and old treasures. So this series has been about what are the old treasures of the City Life Church. And we haven't had time to talk about all of them, but we've picked a few, and we're going to hit three of them three of them tonight. So I want to give you this phrase here. This is our first fill-in-the-blank here. Uh, sign in Latin translates without, while Sarah translates wax, without wax. And this is important. We did a whole series years ago based on this called uh, Without Wax because in ancient times when there was a sculptor that was working and they made a mistake, they didn't want to have to start over. And so what they would do is they would take dust or, or, or pieces from the kind of stone that they were working with and they would mix it with a clear wax and they would melt it down to create a paste and they would use that to hide the imperfection in the sculpture. 
And so when they would sell their sculpture, just like things being sold today, the condition that it was in would drive the price. And so sometimes that they would actually take a candle or some type of flame and hold it next to the sculpture in different places where they were a little bit suspicious to see if it would begin to melt away. Now, if you pay attention to that word that's on your handout, you know that's the word that gives us sincerely. Right, sincera. That's the, the, the what came out of that. Of this idea that when you sign a letter, you say sincerely and you put your name. It means what I've written to you is without wax. What, what I've put in this letter to you is the true sentiment of my heart. That that it's not pretense. I'm not hiding something from you. I'm not trying to be someone that I'm not. And here we are, right, thousands of years later, and this is just a part of our culture and our communication with each other. It's an important concept for us because this is who we are as a church. We're saying we're without wax. If you're looking for a church that's perfect, who has perfect people, then you shouldn't come back here next week because that's not us. You with me? So, so there's something inside of us that says as a church, we want people to know who we are. We want people to know what we believe. We want people to know. We don't want people to get six months, a year into their walk with us as a church and go, I had no idea this is what you were really about. We want from the first day of your encounter with us, we want to live with an openness and a sincerity so that you know who we are. And so that if we're not the church that you're looking for, then, then we can help you find the one where you fit just right and where you belong. I don't do the connection calls anymore for visitors because what we began to realize is that people did not ever call me back because I think they got nervous. I've been there one time. I don't want to talk to the pastor, right? I mean, people, I'm, right, I'm sure there's people like, I don't even know if I can delete his message from my voicemail. It's a pastor, right? He's like, oh, I could get struck by lightning. So what we realized is we thought we were doing a good thing, but it was probably a little bit counterproductive. And so now people in the church are, are making those calls and then we do follow-up calls if it's, if it's necessary and we're getting more response from people. That's part of learning. That's, that's a great example of a new treasure. Are right? you with me? You got to be willing to change. But I do remember years ago talking to one lady and she came and she was a little bit hesitant. And so I just said, would you, you know, would you mind if I just said, you seem a little bit, a little bit hesitant in, in, in about when ex- describing your experience with the church. And she said, well, I come from a, you know, a church that's, that's very staid and quiet and, 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 uh, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to see what else is out there. And I've got teenagers and I think we need something more contemporary, but I can just say, I, I don't want something as contemporary as you all are right? She said, because you all, it was pretty intense when we left that service. I'm not sure we're up for that every week, right? And so, but it was great. I said, can I just, I just want to thank you for, for being authentic, right? Without wax, because then we were able to recommend some churches that she was able to go to, some pastors that we know that would have been the great next step for her and her experience in wanting to find expressive wear. I know I'm investing a little bit of time that was, I was praying for the service day. I really felt like there would be some people here and, and you're here and you've been hurt by churches before because you felt like after you got there a little while you finally figured out who they were and, and, and you felt a little bit betrayed. And what I want to say to you, that's not how we do it here at the City Life Church. We want you to know who we are right from the front and that's part of what tonight is about. So I want to talk about worship. We're going to talk about generosity and we're going to talk about rest and I'm going to do my best to get all of that done in the next 30 minutes. So all right, worship is a lasting treasure. It's an old treasure here at the City Life Church. Worship is deeply personal, but also conspicuously public. Worship is deeply personal, but also conspicuously public. It's called Davidic worship. It's called psalmic worship. There's lots of ways that you can worship. We're not saying that if your worship experience or the church that you go to is more staid and calm is is a wrong way to worship. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that there is another biblical expression of worship that you read about in the Psalms. Again, it's called Davidic 
Davidic worship or psalmic worship. It's loud. There's an intensity to it. It's very expressive. It's very participatory. And that's the kind of worship that we do here at the City Life Church. Even though the kinds of instruments we might use might change over time, even the kinds of songs, even though the kinds of songs we might use might change over time, the, the culture of the worship is one of expression. It's one of passion. It's a deeply personal experience, but it is also a very public experience. And you might say, well, my worship, I don't want my worship to be public. And, and what I would encourage you to say is that you, at some point you might find that then this worship experience is not going to be the church for you. But what I would also encourage you to do, make sure that you check it out long enough because it just might be that it's new. And once you begin to experience this biblical form of worship, you might find that there's something inside of you that says, I'm going to beat one of these young adults through the front row next Saturday because I just want to get close to what's happening. It might be that this idea of being seen by others in a worship setting makes you really uncomfortable, and that's okay. There's something about our humanity that we don't like to be conspicuous. There's something about our humanity that likes to hide. There's something about our humanity that doesn't want to be seen, but this idea of Davidic worship calls us out of that place regardless of what your personality and says, I want the world to see the love and the passion and the devotion that I have for God. Psalm 40 Verse 3 says, he has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see, many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. This idea of many seeing is this idea of the Holy Spirit inspiring the psalmist to say there's a kind of worship that's supposed to be public. There's a kind of worship that's supposed to be conspicuous so that other people who don't know God or other people who've not experienced something personal with God, they see you and something begins to stir inside of them that says, I want a taste of that. One of my theological mentors, the, the Reverend Dr. Katie Holman, the church that we, I spent all my formative years as a Christian, she would always say to me, talking about charismatic worship, she said, all the cathedrals of the world that have these beautiful stained glass, we love that, but now we are supposed to be the stained glass to one another. There is something about the beauty of expressive worship that inspires. There's something about the beauty of expressive worship that creates a sense of awe in people that draws them into that place. And so what we're saying to you tonight is whatever your next step is, just take the next step. We joke here at the City Life Church, for you, it just might be palms up, right? That might be your next step. Just getting your hands out of your pocket and just beginning to use, you use your physical body to communicate in every other aspect of your life. Let your physical body be used to declare the glory of God. And the next thing you know, the hands might be up in the air, right? You, you, we're saying you've not worshiped until you've had to experience a little self-defense because of the people that are next to you or they might be arm wavers, right? Or the, the charismatic startle, somebody bumps into you while your eyes are closed and you jump, right? Everybody's seen that before. They think it's a revival's breaking out. No, the person behind me just got a little exuberant and bumped into me, and it's frightened me. There's something inside of you, I'm telling you, that longs to cry out and tell God how much you love him. And there are people that are in this room every night, and they need to see your passion. They need to see the love. That's one of the reasons why attending church is such an important priority. It's not because just of what's going to happen in you. It's what you bring when you come. It's what you bring when you come. And when you stand there, I would encourage you every time we gather and worship, at some point, open your eyes. You'll see me do it all the time. Try and just look around the room and see the people who are willing to be seen. 
Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, I'm not going to read all of these. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another and to act, one another to acts of love and good works. In another translation, it, it uses the, actually uses the word to provoke one another. I love that word, to provoke one another to love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The writer of Hebrews is talking about this idea of gathering together for many reasons, but for one of them is for this idea of public worship. One of them is because he understands, or she understands, whoever wrote this text is saying, hey, come on, the world needs to see a witness of people being impassioned for God. Are you willing to be seen? Are you willing to be seen? Psalm 96, Psalm 98, they're all there for you to check out for if you're a note taker. And if you're not a note taker, then we're converting you into a note taker tonight by putting something in your hands. All right. There's this idea of wanting to be seen by people. It's part of worship. I'm not talking about showing off, right? It's one of the reasons why we say your, your worship should be measured. Not in, not in the sense that, 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 that you should feel controlled, but you should be measured in the sense of always being aware of where the rest of the room is. Psalmic worship and Davidic worship is not about doing your own thing at the expense of everybody else in the room. Psalmic and Davidic worship is about being in step with everybody else. So we're loud that you're loud with us. When we're quiet, that you're quiet with us. When we're excited, that you are excited with us. But when we're reserved, that you would be reserved with us. And many people point to the story of David when he danced to the shame of his wife. It was such exuberance that it caused her to be embarrassed. Many people use that text, misappropriate, misappropriate that text and say, that's my permission to do what I want. But the context of the text is that David is the worship leader. So he had a permission to set the pace that everybody else was supposed to follow suit. They practiced that text as if David was just some person in attendance, but he was not. He was the king, and he was the worship leader of a nation. And so we take the context of that text, that's instructive to us, that we say we have people who are leading us in worship, we follow their lead, we let them set the pace, we measure ourselves by what's happening in the room. Exodus 33, 18 through 23, there's someone else that when you step into Davidic psalmic worship, something powerful happens. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18, it says, Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. This is Moses on the mountain, and he's having this conversation with God, and the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose, but you may not you may not look directly at my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock as my glorious presence passes by. I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Now that's another sermon for another time that ties a lot into this table and this communion that we share tonight and the atoning death of Christ and the access that, that gives us to the presence of God. But prior to Jesus dying on the cross, it wasn't possible. And that created a great dilemma for humanity because something inside of us longs to be seen by our creator. When you step into a place of expressive Davidic psalmic worship, you're saying, God, I want to be seen by you. I, I, I want to know that you're looking at me. And I'm telling you, when you give yourself to that moment, no matter how introverted or how extroverted you are, something inside of you comes alive because God is looking at you and you can see his face. Not his physical face, 
not his literal face, but you see with the eyes on the inside that I would argue is much deeper. Worship is an acknowledgement of his sovereignty, but it's also a confession of my depravity. Worship is an acknowledgement of his sovereignty, but also a confession of my depravity. Psalm 37, Psalm 42, Numbers 6. As you begin to read in the Psalms and other places in the Bible that talk about worship, you see that there's just this declaration of the greatness of God. There's this declaration of God. I, you, I, I'm declaring that I want you to govern my life. I, I want to live in a place of surrender to you. But as you read through those Psalms, you'll also see that there's the, at the same time that there's this there's this confession of I'm desperate for you. When you have a revelation of how great God is, you also have a revelation of how needy you are. When I have a revelation of how great God is, I have a revelation of how desperate I am for his mercy, for his love, for his forgiveness. When you step into a place of Davidic worship, psalmic worship, expressive worship, it's you saying, God, I want you to rule over my life because without you, I am a mess. I am selfish. I have bad attitudes. I th- say things to people I should not say, right? Am I, is it just me? Or is it, come on, is it, right? We step into this place of worship, and it's our way of saying, God, apart from you, my life would be a disaster. I need you. I'm desperate for you. And when you come with a heart like that, I'm just telling you it's much easier w- when it comes time for him to begin to rule over your life. Sin always makes me want to hide from the only one who can truly heal. Sin always makes me want to hide from the only one who can truly heal. Ezra 9, 6 says, I prayed, oh my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Genesis 3, 8 through 10, we know Adam and Eve, the very first people to commit the very first sin. What's the first thing that they did? They hid. It's one of the reasons why the devil is so busy bringing us into places of temptation. It's not just the pain that the sin itself causes, but he knows that it causes us to want to hide. And when we hide, then we're not going to be healed, and then we just get stuck into this routine of of brokenness. Worship says to you and to me, come to the presence of the Father just as you are. Don't hide. Don't, don't, don't. If you've done some things that you're embarrassed about, the best place that you could be is under the gaze of the creator of the universe who has the power to heal and the power to forgive. Don't isolate yourself when you feel ashamed. Those are the moments you should press in all the more. All right, stewardship. Stewardship is a lasting treasure. It's an old treasure here at the City Life Church. So we're going to talk a little bit about generosity tonight. 16 of 38 parables of Christ deal with money. If you're offended by the church talking about money, then you're offended with Christ. One out of every 12 verses in the New Testament address money. 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, and over 2,000 on money. There are four heart questions that every person should ask themselves about money. We don't talk about money at the church because we want your money. We talk about money at this church because we know that money can become an idol for all of us that can rob us of our destiny. We, we, don't, we, we don't need people's money. You with me? We talk about money. We teach about stewardship. We're not a church that's, that's hammering you to open up your wallet every time we take up an offering because we believe that we're going to teach on stewardship and giving and then your, truth will bear fruit on its own. Truth will bear fruit on its own. So there's four heart questions that you should be willing to ask yourself. The first one is this, is am I cheerful? Am I 
cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11 says, and God will generously provide, all right, I'm going to read Deuteronomy, sorry, getting excited here. Deuteronomy 26, I'm not going to read all of this, I'm just going to read the last, last uh, let me start in verse 10. And now, O Lord, I have brought you the first portion of the harvest that you have given me from the ground, then place the produce before the Lord your God and bow to the ground and worship before him, and afterward you may go, listen to what it says, and complain because of what God has asked of you, right? That's not what the text says. Afterward you may go and celebrate because of all the good things the Lord God has given to you and to your household. God wants us to walk in a place of cheerfulness every opportunity we have to give our stuff away. Because at the end of the day, it's not our stuff anyways, it's His. And we're going to talk about that when we get to Am I Submitted? There should be something inside of you that gets excited when you have an opportunity to walk in generosity. There should be something inside of you. This is what we were talking about before. Talking about the fruitfulness is the character of Christ on the inside and the work of Christ on the outside. One of the, the characters of Christ is the cheerfulness of generosity that should well up in our hearts when God is asking us to give something away. Am I cheerful? Am I expectant? Am I expectant? 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11, and God will generously provide all you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat in the same way he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a, produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when, we take, and when we take your gifts to those in need, they will thank God. There should be a sense of expectancy that we carry, that when we walk in generosity, that we're going to walk in a place of prosperity. I'm not talking about the prosperity message that's out there that I think is just, a, uh, just an ugly lie to take people's money. I'm talking about this idea of prosperity that's the, the true biblical sense of prosperity, that, that's talking in a place of walking in the joy of life, that walking in a place of just having your needs met. I'm not talking about excess and opulence and the ugliness that that teaching has evolved into. True prosperity is this idea of walking in the fullness of the will of God for my life. I believe, in, I believe in, a, in a material prosperity destiny. I know that's not a popular idea, but I don't think everybody's going to walk into the same place of wealth in this life. I think God has, has planned for different measures of wealth for different people based on the destiny that you're called to live. The question is, are we walking in His plan for our life? The, the, question, is, the, 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 the question is, am I just expectant in the place that I'm at and the life that I'm living that God's going to take care of me? And the Bible says, if you want to experience that, then be a cheerful giver. Am I content? Am I content? 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. We teach expectancy and contentment all in the same word, in the same breath, because they hold each other in a healthy tension. I want to live with a sense of expectancy but walk with a heart of contentment for what I have. I want to live with a sense of expectancy, but I want to have a heart of contentment for the things that I have. Paul, in the, 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 his letters to the church of Philippi, said he discovered one of the great secrets of life is to just be content, whether he has much 
or whether he has a little. I think that's in chapter four. You should check that out. It's pretty good stuff. Just saying the Bible, it's good. It's good reading. Are you ready for this last one? This is a word we don't like. Am I submitted? I'm not talking about being submitted to leaders or people in a church. We're not talking about that. That's right. If, if you've got to talk to people about submission, then you're having the wrong conversation to begin with. Live your life above reproach. You'll have the influence that you want to have. Am I submitted? Am I submitted to the truth of this book? That's the question. Matthew 21, 33 to 44. I'm not going to go there and read that, but it's a, it's a powerful parable. It's a powerful parable. Now, now, the headings of the Bible are not divinely inspired, but they are instructive. In my Bible, it says the parable of the evil farmers. Now, that should be an indication to us that we don't want our lives to be described by this story that's about ready to be read. You with me? The evil farmers. And so the landowner, the person that owns the land, builds the vineyard up and then leases it and rents it out, rents it out to other people. And, and then when it came time for him to come and get what was due him, the people says, hey, we're going to keep all of this for ourselves. You read the story yourself and, and what Jesus is saying, that's how so many people live their lives. They forget that everything that they have belongs to the Father. There is nothing that I have in my possession. Children, material resources, talents, gifts, and abilities. You make the list, all of it belongs to him. It is the essence of stewardship. I own nothing. I have nothing. It all belongs to him. And I'm supposed to live my life in a prayerful conversation. God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Sometimes he asks us to give it away. Sometimes he gives us a sense of liberty to enjoy it, just like any good father would do. The question is, what's your perspective? What's your point of view? What's your, are you submitted to whatever God asks of you? We teach about tithing as a church. It's not a requirement for membership, but it's an important requirement for leadership. You might say, well, Fred, I'm not sure what I believe about tithing. That's, well, let's not talk about tithing for a minute. Let's talk about generosity. You might not believe in tithing, but, but, but you can't read the Bible and not believe in generosity. And if you walk in the generosity of Christ, guess what you're going to end up doing? You're, going to be, you're probably going to end up giving away more than what 10% would be, right? If you're walking in generosity, you're not walking in generosity until you begin to walk in a place of giving sacrificially. If you're not giving sacrificially, you're not walking in generosity. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't necessarily mean I have to give here. And I would say, I, hey, you can make a case for that. I'm okay with that. I'm, just make sure you're giving it somewhere. But, if, but the culture of our church is that if you call this your church home, we expect you to give here because if you receive here, you should sow here. It's just part of the culture of our church. And for leaders, we say we're going to make it a requirement. If you're going to walk in a place of leadership, there's a higher expectation that we have on you. So we have something called the Barnabas Mandate. It's, it's something that we ask leaders to submit themselves, to commit themselves to. They're going to walk in a place of leadership. The, people think that, that I want to become a leader because the, I'm, I'm less submitted. I'm telling you, the, the deeper you go into leadership, the more submitted your life becomes. The more submitted your life becomes, especially in this idea of generosity and giving. All right, come on. I'm doing good. Two out of three. I got 10 minutes left. It's not counting the extra time that I always steal on the back end. Right. Rest. How are the fill in the blanks coming? Everybody got their answers? Yeah, all the time. What's that? Oh, yeah, thank you, Jenna. Jenna's helping me out. I said I'm going to forget. So, hey, we've got new on the website. If you go to www.citylifeva.com, that uh, there's a new system for online giving. New system for online giving. So you need to check that out. Even if you're not an online giver, you should go, you should just look at that and, and check that out. And so we're just, we've got to, as a church, we've got to stay current with the technology. You with me? Especially for the next generation. All right. 
Rest is a lasting treasure at the City Life Church. I saved this one for last. This is one of the most, this is one of my great passions in life and teaching. Rest is a lasting treasure. It's an old treasure here at City Life. Just, just think to yourself, just over the last six months, what's happened to you when you've not gotten enough rest? Just reflect for a moment. Think about the days where you've been the most tired, the most fatigued. John Ortberg, I'm going to read an excerpt out of this book towards the end, but he says fatigue is the greatest enemy of a Christian character, and I think he's absolutely right. We overwork, we just, we get tired, and then all of a sudden we're just a grump, right? Is that just me? Preaching to myself tonight. There are four specific types of rest in Scripture. Four specific types of rest in Scripture. I'm working on a manuscript right now that walks through the book of Hebrews. I'm hoping to be able to get that done this year. It, it talks, I think there's four kinds of rest that the Bible teaches us about. The first one is paternal rest. Hebrews 4, 2 through 3a. 2 through 3a. It says, for this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did, but it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God, for only we who believe can enter his rest. There is a rest that comes to the soul when you know God is your father. There is a restfulness that begins to come inside of you when you walk in a relationship with God that's passion-filled and life-defining and moment-by-moment governing. There's a restfulness that comes to you when you wake up the first day after having taken your first spiritual breath knowing that you've been reconciled to the creator of the universe. All of us need that kind of rest. There's purpose rest purpose rest. Hebrews 4.8 says, now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. The rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is purpose rest. The, 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 the purpose of Joshua was to lead the nation of Israel into taking possession of the promised land. They had a destiny. They had a call. They had a work to do. There was a work, right? There's the work on the inside. There's the work on the outside. When you begin to discover the work that God has called you to on the outside, Outside, even though you might be physically tired, your soul inside, the part of you that makes you you, the part of you that's going to live forever, there's a restfulness that you experience because you're walking in the calling of God. Perpetual rest. Hebrews 4, 10 through 11. This is out of the Living Bible. We usually use the New Living Translation, but the Living Bible really hones in on the intent of the language in this verse. Christ has already entered there. He's resting from his work just as God did after the creation. And let us do our best to go into that place of rest. And the verse goes on. This is perpetual rest. This is the rest that comes to your heart knowing that heaven is promised to you. This is the rest that comes that you know that when you breathe your last, you're going to spend an eternity in heaven. There is a, a deep abiding rest that settles into your heart. And when you begin to have that kind of rest, I'm telling you, when you have, have paternal rest and purpose rest and perpetual rest, regardless of the circumstances around you, that it's hard for your joy to be dislodged because you're living as a restful person. It's part of the kingdom. Hebrews 4, 4b, when you see that, it means the second half of that verse. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. This is a physical rest, a physical rest. Jesus had a lot to say about the Sabbath. This is one of his points of contention with the religious leaders of his day. That text there in Mark is an example where, where Jesus is saying, hey, you don't even understand this. You, you put all these rules on, on, on people and you don't even recognize that even in your own teachings, this, the, the, the holy scriptures that, that, that you uh, uh, tell people that you're an expert in, you, you don't even acknowledge that there were, there were exceptions. 
He makes the statement at, at one point in his, in his teaching where he says, hey, not to mention the fact that because I was there when the creation happened, right? He's just saying. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift from God. Now, the problem we get into is that we say, well, if it's a gift, then I just don't have to accept it. Well, that's taking a Western cultural mindset and, and applying it to the kingdom of heaven. We're, we're going to get into trouble that way all the time. Ephesians 2.8 talks about salvation itself being a gift, but who here would say that you're free to reject that? Eternal consequences. We should never reject any gift that comes from God. The idea of gift in the kingdom means that you can't earn it. The idea of gift in the kingdom means that you don't deserve it. The idea of gift in the kingdom is that even if you tried harder, you could never rise to the requirement that would cause God to say, I owe this to you. I want every gift that God has to give to me. I want all that he wants to give, all that I'm undeserving of. And this idea of a Sabbath is a gift that God has given to us. And if you reject this gift, I'm telling you that your body will not live as long as it's supposed to and you'll fall short of your purpose. There's ten commandments, right? I'm not going to work through all ten of those tonight. But how many of us would say that the nine that excluding rest... That's one of the ten. We take the other nine. Who here would argue that some of those are outdated? Right? Who, who here would look at the rest of those nine and say, uh, I think it's okay for us to leave that one behind. But that's what we've done to the tenth one. I think God in all of his wisdom and sovereignty and perfectness said, people are not going to like this one. So I'm going to put it in the list with all of these others to help them remember that this one is just as sacred as these. I'm going to put it in this list because I want people to understand this idea of physical rest is just, I created the human body, and he's saying, I'm telling you, once every seven days, you've got to give yourself permission to rejuvenate and restart, or you're going to end up in heaven before you're supposed to be here. If you don't practice this idea of physical rest, that you are working against the order of the universe, and it will not end well for you, and it most certainly will end soon. Exodus 20, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember to observe the Sabbath, which is Shabbat in the Hebrew, and keep it holy. Holy is Kadash in the Hebrew. Keep it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat day of rest, nuach. Word for rest is nuach. Dedicated to the Lord your God, and on that day no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, but on the seventh day he rested, he nuoked. And that is why the Lord blessed the Shabbat and he made it kadash. Shabbat means to repose, desist from exertion, cease, celebrate, leave, put away, rest, rid, and be still. Kadash means to be clean, to appoint, to consecrate, to dedicate, to be hallowed and holy, to prepare, proclaim, and purify. Nuach means to rest, to be at rest, to settle down, to stay, to dwell, comfortable, convenient, and easygoing. All of you need a day once every seven days that satisfies the definition of all three of those words. And it's, it's sacred. The other six are ordinary it's interesting, isn't it? We think of the Sabbath as the day that's ordinary. We think of the Sabbath as the day that's common, that we can just negotiate it, and I may or may not do it, and, but it's this day, right? 
There's seven days that God created. This is the only day that he speaks of as being sacred and holy and consecrated, and yet that's the day that we say, huh, maybe, maybe not. There is something about walking in this place of rest that you and I need to discover if we are going to have the physical energy and vitality that we need to do the work of Christ on the outside and the inside, and the inside. Paul Bart, a great modern-day theologian, a little bit more reformed than me, but I love what he has to say about the Sabbath. Let things take their course with particular freedom, distinct from weekday practice to as much or as little as the day brings. The day should be free from compulsion. When's the last time you had a day like that? You got to pray. I'm not talking about your, your Sabbath day has to be filled with prayer. I think there's some poor teaching out there as if the, the Sabbath day isn't a Sabbath day unless you fill it from back to front with, with, with spiritual pathways. And your spirit, the pathways that we teach, uh, uh, your, your uh, spiritual disciplines, they should be filling up every day of your life. The Sabbath day is not supposed to be the catch-all for all of your Bible reading, right? You, you should be practicing the pathways every day, all the days. You with me? People have mistaught, I'm telling you, they've mistaught it. The Sabbath day is, is, it's about a physical, now, do we connect with God on that day? Do we pray? Do we read our Bible? Sure we do. But it's about the rejuvenation of the physical body. And you should begin to pray and say, God, how can I do it? You look at the busyness of your schedule. You should begin to enter into a prayerful conversation with God. The book of James, if you lack wisdom, pray. He'll give it to you. Ask him, help me figure this thing out. You've got to be willing to invest in your rest. If you're going to rest the way that you need to, it needs to be a line item in your family budget. You've got to be willing to spend some money because resting is not just about being sedentary. You might be an active rester. Vanessa loves to garden. She loves to get her hands in the soil. If I were to never cut grass or mulch another day for the rest of my life, it would be heaven for me. You with me? But, but, so, but she likes to be active when she's resting. The measure is, are you rejuvenated the next day? Resting isn't just about being sedentary. It's about reju- being rejuvenated, and you understand your body and what you need, but it might cost you something. It might be that you say, you know what? I'm going to take on and tutor a student for summer so that I can afford a monthly payment to buy my family passes to water country. Put it on a payment plan. You with me? F- f- pray. Ask God to give you creative ideas. To, to have a, a, a budget, an income, to be able to do active things, it, it's going to enable your family to be rejuvenated. You, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be flexible. In our modern world, there's not a, a, a flow of the day like it was in, in Jesus' day where everybody kind of had the same routine. Your, your days, you might be shift work, or right? you, you might have a, a work schedule that doesn't flow with the ordinary days of the week. Your Sabbath doesn't have to be the same day all the time. You've got to be flexible. It might be that, that your Sabbath, that, that you just can only do one afternoon from lunch until sunset. You, you with me? Be flexible. Don't fall under the perfectionistic mindset that says, if I can't do it exactly right, I won't do it at all. That's a lie from the devil. Be flexible. You've got to be willing to protect your Sabbath. It might mean doing the extra load of laundry before you go to bed the night before so you can have the day that you need. It might be putting on the headlamp. They make those now. Cut the grass in the dark. That's okay. Be a great testimony for your neighbors, right? When we began to practice the Sabbath about 10 years ago, we began to realize that the Sabbath wasn't a Sabbath anymore because it became the catch-all of all the things that we didn't do during the week. And what we began to realize is that it caused us to focus, that something inside of us, we're going to protect this day. We're going to do what we can on the other days so that on that day it doesn't become the spillover day. Protect it. 
It's a family day. Guys, don't wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'll see you at 6. Fred said, i got to go rest today. If you have a family, be with your family. Are there exceptions to that? Sure, that decision should be made as a family. Family day. Learn from other people. If this is new for you tonight, talk to people in this church who've been coming for any amount of time. Call us, email us, fred at citylifeva.com, vanessa at citylifeva.com. We answer our calls, Facebook us, we're out there, right? We'd love to talk. If you've got questions about how to learn from other people who we've been doing, I'm telling you this for 10 years, I, I guarantee you that our lives are just as busy as anybody else in this room. We, we find a way. You've got to be, have grace for yourself. You've got to have grace for yourself. I like this. this. is my favorite slide here. Can we just stop and pause? I know. It's cool, isn't it? All right. If you're a type A personality like me and driven and task-oriented like me, when you begin to rest for the first time, there's a chemical shift that will take place in your body. You're going to experience depression. I'm, I'm telling you. And you're going to say, this resting is for the purse. I'm sad, I'm grumpy, I don't know what Fred was talking about, right? If you live your life so high strung, I'm telling you, you're a ball of chemicals. That's how God made us. If you don't like that, you take it up with him. You're a ball of chemicals, and, and you, you, you might be addicted to adrenaline. And you step into this place of rest, you might feel sluggish and slow. I'm just telling you, if that's you, well, let's talk about it. You want to work through that until you can find this routine because I'm telling you, if you don't, you're going to end up leaving this world way too soon. Our goal is to get to heaven. And that's settled for us when we make a vow of devotion to Christ. But we're not supposed to get there before we're supposed to. And I think a lot of Christians, one of the first things they hear from God is you weren't supposed to be here for another 10 years. And if you'd have done what Fred was talking about, you'd still be at home. God wants us there with him, but he wants us here until he's ready for us. Thank you, David. It is good, isn't it? I like David. <laughs> That's part of the risk of sitting in the front row. There's interaction, isn't there? I know, I know. You got to be willing to be seen, right? Brett, I know, I know. That was our whole first point. Love John Ortberg. Any book that John Ortberg has ever read, I love, his, I love what he's written. Some time ago, I was giving a bath to our three children, and I had a custom of bathing them together more to save time than anything else. I knew that eventually I would have to stop the group bathing, but for the time being, it seemed efficient. That's the way a father thinks, don't we? How can I do this task of nurturing more efficiently? And then we call our friends because it's a contest. By the way, there will be contests next week, fathers and men. Remember last year, men at the church all lined up here seeing who could do the most push-ups, part of the worship service, right? Because at the City Life Church, it is about winners and losers. The ladies, they had their games, folding sheets and making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, right? That's okay, That's a, but we won't be doing those games for the men that you could, you could lose a finger. I'm just saying. It's not a game for men if you're not risking life and limb. We'll have, we'll have EMTs standing by. Johnny was still in the tub, and Laura was out and safely in her pajamas, and I was trying to get Mallory dried off. I read this story once every year at this church. Mallory was out of the water, but was doing what has come to be known in our family as the Dida Day Dance. This consists of her running around and around and around in circles, singing over and over again, Dida Day, Dida Day. 
It is a relatively simple dance expressing great joy. She had this thing of psalmic worship all dialed in at an early age. When she is too happy to hold it in any longer, when words are inadequate to give voice to her euphoria, she has to release her joy, so she does the dida day. On this particular occasion, I was irritated. Mallory, hurry! I prodded, and so she did. She began running in circles faster and faster and cheering dida day more rapidly, right? No, Mallory, that's not what I mean. Stop with the dida day stuff and get over here so I can hurry and dry you off. Hurry up! Then she asked a profound question, why? I had no answer. I had nowhere to go. Nothing to do, no meeting to attend, no sermons to write. I was just used to being in a hurry all the time. So preoccupied with my own little agenda, so trapped in this rut of moving from one task to another, that here was life, here was joy, here was an invitation to dance right in front of me, and I was missing it. So I got up, and Mallory and I did the D-Dod-Day dance together. And she said I was pretty good, too, for a man my age. <laughs> if you don't learn to rest, you're, you're going to miss some of the greatest moments in this life with people around you. If you don't learn to rest, you're going to miss some of the most awe-inspiring moments that your Creator has planned for you. Stand with me. Matthew 25, I ended with that. I don't know if you've ever read Matthew 25, but you should check that out because it's a sobering part of the Bible to read. It's a sobering part of the Bible to read. If I were to sum up the parables of Matthew 25, I would sum it up just like I put on your sheet. When it's all said and done, there's going to be a test. How did, you, how did you do with the life that you were given? I don't know about you, but I want to be a true disciple who bears much fruit. Father, let it be that this church, long after we are gone, Long after we've been there with you in eternity, there will be generations of people here who call the City Life Church their home who are champion Davidic psalmic worship, who are championing this idea of stewardship, who are living their lives with a cry and a declaration of the importance of rest, that it will not be a forgotten sacred day, that as long as this church exists, as long as people who call it home, who have breath, that they're going to be champions of these treasures that we know are sacred to you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.
Sing it again. Oh, Santa, say, oh. 